And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have yet another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. Now, COVID's changed a lot of our lives. It has changed the music industry in ways that I can't even begin to describe. There is no live music or very little of it. That said, the need for efficiency, scheduling, organization, all of it is really at an all-time high. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Now, today's topic is going to be live music management technology. Now, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, having published The Realist Guide to a Successful Music Career last year with my good friend, Joel Cummins. I have a long history in and around the music industry. That said, I know that uh, it's been it's difficult for promoters, managers, venues, bands, everyone to keep it together. Now, that said, all my friends in the music industry will be the first to admit that they're not always the most organized. And, and that's okay, because today's guest has a technology platform that helps with that. Now, this is another company that we're profiling in our top Austin startups series. And today's guest is Matt Ford, the CEO of Prism.fm. Matt, what's up? Hey, how you doing? Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing great. And, you know, every founder's story is best told by the founder. So why don't we get started with a little bit more about your backstory and what brought you to starting Prism.fm? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, to just quick note on that one, just um severity of how impacted the music industry we should we should definitely carve out some time and talk about that it's a really interesting unique situation there's a good thing going on right now called save our stages so if you could post that that'd be awesome it's a good initiative from this organization called niva that uh, we're a partner of and they're doing some great work um but yeah we can get to that later so your question was uh how did, how did what was your question again <laughs> Well, what's your backstory and how did yeah. you, uh, what, what made you want to start? Well, let's first talk about the problem you solve and then yeah. maybe, maybe a little bit about what, you know, why you started Prism. Definitely. So I think your audience is a lot of business owners and maybe even startups or technology companies. So, you know, to oversimplify it, I would say we're like a Salesforce, like CRM tool, but it's super tailored to the music industry like the, the live music industry in particular. Yeah, if, you, uh, if your job is to produce live music events um, you, and you try to use Salesforce or HubSpot or something like that to manage your business and uh, that kind of thing, it's just gonna fall short and it's not, it's not gonna map really well to your process. It's a very unique kind of detail-oriented process putting on you know, thousands of concerts a year. And Prism is a tool that helps streamline that whole process for 
promoters, venues, and agents. And those are all of the businesses in the live music ecosystem that help make this thing, you know, go, go round. Um, and when I say, you know, it's a Salesforce like tool, um, the people who are prison customers log in in the morning, they have a calendar, uh, for all their shows coming up. They can do all their contracts inside of there. They can keep track of their ticket sales, all of their revenue, all of their costs. Um, they can run financial reports. They can use our tools to like do deep financial analysis. They can connect with other promoters and agents. Like it's essentially like a pipeline for, for moving bands across the country and, you know, just an overall, you know, tool, software-based tool to help make this industry a bit more efficient. Um, and yeah, happy to go into the details of any of that, but that's, that's the big, that's our solution. The problem we're solving is I'll say it again. Yeah. yeah if your business is organ, organizing thousands of concerts, um, the tiny little, de the devil's in the details and there's a lot of details. So having a technology that's, you know, purpose built to solve that problem is really, uh, really essential. Um, I think you were asking about my background as well. Should I spin into that? Yeah. So, well, a few things. So first off, if you want to learn more about Prism, you can go to prism.fm. You can scroll down and click the link that's in the show notes. I also need to let you know that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Yeah, I want, I want to get into the tools. Now, one thing that I think a lot of people don't understand when it comes to touring artists is the you know while you see the band together on the stage the organization is often scattered around the country and uh there's there's booking agents there's band management there's road managers stage managers i mean there's a whole lot of stuff going on and it's going on in different time zones and you know the you mentioned earlier about wanting to save live venues and stuff like that uh, most so you're either part of, of AEG and Live Nation's massive network of venues, or you're one of many, 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 many independent venue owners. And with that, all these things become scattered. You're talking about organizations that are picking up and moving from one city to the next on a day's notice. Yeah. And keeping track, keeping track and organizing all that stuff is a major undertaking and doing it in a way that makes sense. And then on top of it, too, some of the things that that suck up a lot of time and energy, especially for bands that don't have a big organization yet, are things like uh, putting a, a show under contract, collecting money, making offers, agreeing on prices and stuff like that. And, you know, those are, are those are some of the many problems that you solve. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and yeah, you, you, you nailed it. So for those of you that don't know the, the live music industry is you could, you could boil it down to tens of thousands of tours happening around the country at all time. So if you're a band and you've gained a certain level of popularity, um, live music tends to be a band's greatest revenue stream, um, because there's not as much money in streaming anymore. So it's, it's, uh, it's helped contribute to this really, you know, uh, vibrant live music economy, um, because, you know, uh, need is the mother of invention and there's a need for bands to make money. And the best way for them to do that is to play shows. And the best way for them to play shows is to organize tours just for, uh, economies of scale and, you know, saving money. So if you're a band, you don't want to just play Austin, you know, you want to go and play San Antonio, you want to go and play Dallas and you hop over to Oklahoma and you play a couple of cities in Oklahoma and then Arkansas and then, you know, Louisiana, I'm like trying to 
think of a map right now. I can do it over here, I guess. Um, but yeah, point being is, is there's one, there's one business that's in charge of organizing all these concerts. And then in every single place where the band is going, um, there's people that are running the music venues and they're essentially, you know, fielding, uh, tour requests all the, all the time. Uh, and they have shows going all the time when it's not, you know, when it's not COVID, there's not shows happening right now. Um, so yeah, it, it is really just this kind of like chaotic mess of people trying to plan really complex tours, uh, and venues trying to, you know, venues trying to have a really awesome show every single night of the week. Um, and without prism, everyone is just using their own internal systems. Uh, so Google calendar spreadsheets, pen and paper, literally the other day I asked an agent, you know, how, how do you, how do you route a tour? And he grabbed a pen on his desk and he's like, yeah, I write it down in a, in a notebook. Um, so here we are in 2020 and, um, yeah, prism there's a, there, there, we noticed, you know, a couple of years ago that there was a real opportunity to create some technology infrastructure to bring the, uh, the people together that are planning these tours and to help streamline the process and make it more efficient. So what, what made you want to start this business? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> I have, I started you know, creating companies or whatever, about 10 years ago when I was in college. And my first success was a company called spotlight.fm. And that's, that's probably a, a conversation for another time, but it brought me closer into the industry. I worked with a number of promoters and festivals and agencies and record labels and music venue brands with that company. So I started just learning about the industry and really fell in love with it. Um, oh, uh, my sneeze. Nope, not coming. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I really fell in love with the industry and about, uh, I exited that company about five, six years ago. And, uh, I thought I wanted to start my own festival. I went to Coachella and it was a really interesting festival. I was like, wow, they seems like there's, it's a really good revenue stream. It brings people together in a beautiful way. Um, it's a very, like, seems like it's a very spiritual experience to go to a festival compared to you know, all the other things that you can do on this planet. And I just really fell in love with it and wanted to contribute the way that I could. Um, but it turns out that my unique skill set and actually building software is really needed in the industry. Um, so six years ago, I really kind of, I started doing my own events, but also building technology to streamline the process. And it was just this kind of like dog food experience where I was my own customer for a long time. Um, and was just learning about the industry. So I booked thousands of concerts and organized a festival for four years and worked with venues all, all over Austin um, and really just, you know, learned the industry firsthand. And it was then that I, you know, figured out um, that, you know, venues, and it was, it was apparent uh, that venues really had a problem um, in terms of just how chaotic it is to try and book 300 shows a year. And, um, you know, yeah, then I, I over, over a long period of time, figured out what the solution was. And I, and I did it with the help of a venue owner. So we had a, a venue owner in Austin, Texas decide that, um, he liked, he liked what we were doing and liked us. And he had been kind of thinking of this himself and he was a really, uh, really good, uh, prognosticator for us and, and helped us understand his process. Uh, his name's Steve Sternshine, the venues at Park control room in Austin, Texas. And 
yeah, we built it with him over a year to really map to what professional venues needed, you know, and then we got a few other venues on board and then we got 40 venues on board and the technology has just evolved and evolved and evolved. So the, the long story short of what I just said, it was never one moment of inspiration. It was a desire to be an entrepreneur, to work in an industry that I really cared about um, and that I was passionate about. And then eventually just, you know, fighting like crazy to figure out what, what, what was a problem that I could actually solve and then working really hard to solve it. And, you know, the company is still transforming to date. So I haven't stopped, you know, thinking about like, yeah, I haven't, I haven't stopped evolving this idea um, to go after, you know, bigger and bigger problems and efficiencies all in the spirits of helping as much as I can. Okay. So now is Prism something that can be used by a band that it's like of any size? Um, so we started off working with the venues and the promoters. So these are the people that are actually putting on the concerts. So a band was more of like a recipient of the efficiency gains that a venue and a promoter would receive. But that being said, we're, we're right in the middle of uh, launching tools specifically for the band. And it's not, it's not the band as much as it's the agent that's planning a tour on behalf of the band. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the big thing that we've used COVID to accomplish right now is we've turned, we've turned Prism into a network where the venue, the promoter and the agent are all coordinating tour details on one platform. So, um, yeah, the long story short is we did not start with the band or the agent in mind, but we have moved into that. Okay. So, and then once again, I think a lot of people don't understand how, how much, how many moving parts are involved in and putting on a live show and a live tour. And like I mentioned, and I've, you know, I've witnessed so much of this firsthand and these are things that have to occur on time and they have to occur seamlessly. And there's a lot of planning that goes into the whole thing. I mean, every, and, and missing one piece of the sequence can easily result in, you know, in the whole thing falling apart. I mean, you have, and, and there's things that software doesn't necessarily solve which is just simple like i don't want to say simple but things like uh you know building the stage tearing it down packing it up moving it from kansas city to st louis and then having it back up ready to go safe functioning coordinated having people not be completely fucking angry with each other because it's been such a cluster uh, then the show happens afterward, people are hanging out. You have these musicians have a lot of adrenaline because they just performed in front of a whole lot of people. Now you got to get them back on the bus on time. You got to get them to the next city and stuff like that. And, and, and you, you know what? <laughs> and, and do what? And you, and you got to get them paid. Right. Right. Which yeah. by the way, and not to, and not to, not to expose, a, a turdish part of the industry, but that is a little bit, that can be an issue. Um, I mean, I, I think I, if you talk to any, any musician that has been, been making money as a live performing artist, someone got stiffed somewhere and <laughs> it, it happens. And, you know, that's one of the things you need to avoid. And some of the, some yeah. uh, less ethical venue owners or promoters, they know that that band is picking up and they need to be somewhere the next day. So that checks in the mail uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, it makes it kind of hard to come back and collect. Let's talk about how you solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you swore too. I wasn't sure if I could swear or not. Um, that's definitely one way. That I can... 
Convey. Sorry, there was only, sometimes there's only one way to get it out there. Yeah, I should have just asked you, but yeah, that that's <laughs> got these complex thought patterns in, in our brains that we're trying to express and swearing is oftentimes one way to do that. Um, but yeah, so in terms of like the classic story of a band getting stiffed or whatever, I'll what I'll say is like there's, there's uh, a challenge with payment in terms of it being better and honest people connecting and um, and you know yeah and solving that problem and then there's this whole whole separate realm of like you know someone who's sketchy and steals and uh, that's definitely not the bulk of the industry. I, I appreciate that you br brought that up and like I can I can I can understand that that's like a folklore of the music industry that you know people kind of resonate with, but. You know, mo most of the people we work with are super honest, and um, and even 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 if you're super honest, uh, there's a huge challenge in just like organizing the whole thing, start to finish. And you're right, and you know, uh, you're you're loading up one band tonight, and then you're thinking about the next band tomorrow. So even if you're even if you're trying to be honest, solving the whole payment thing is can can be a, a huge pain in the butt. But you know, some of what I'm about to tell you is super forward facing, but the whole point of Prism is to streamline that whole thing. So without a tool like Prism, you exchange a Google document or a, a Microsoft Word document saying, hey, here's the terms of how you're getting paid. And here's a spreadsheet to calculate the payment. Because it's not, it's not an upfront guarantee usually. It's an upfront guarantee plus some like complex uh, cut of the ticket sales after the costs are met. So yeah, these deals are not that straightforward. Like the venue has to express all of their costs and the promoter all their costs to the the agent upon striking the deal. So it's it is some upfront payment, but then once again, there's a there's usually a bonus component, and these bonuses can be really com complex. They can they can change in percentages as certain like ticket tiers are hit. And before Prism, people were trying to communicate these things on spreadsheets, um, and there's a lot of human error in there. You know, like. Uh, how you calculate tax might be different than what the agent understands and and how one city requires you to calculate tax my other city requires you to calculate tax so you know a lot of the challenge with with prism was just you know finding ways to streamline these things that you know no when you when you sign up to be a band or you sign up to host a venue like you don't want to have to worry about those tiny little details that really do end up messing up payment um, and prism streamlines that so anyway, when you when you book a band, you say, okay, 30 days out from the show, we're going to send you 10% of the upfront payment or 20% of the upfront payment. Once again, that's another thing that's Prism Streamlines. Without a system that keeps track of that, you're just keeping track of it all in a spreadsheet. And then you have an accountant that's job is to try and go back and forth. But these uh, these venues are running really tight operations. So maybe it's you know, the accountant has like five jobs or something like that, and they're a freelance accountant. Um, so, you know, what we want to do is kind of like streamline that process and, and get the payments timed up and set automatically. And then the night of, um, you know, what, once again, what they're doing is they're in the moment and without prison, they're looking at a spreadsheet. They have a bar manager at three in the morning working off of a spreadsheet. And if they accidentally deleted a cell, uh, the whole spreadsheet gets messed up, and then you've got an angry tour manager and an angry bar manager at 3 a.m. trying to figure out how much the band made. And mistakes happen on both ends. Mistakes that are not favorable for the venue, mistakes that are not favorable for the artists. 
Um, and yeah, once again, Prism just streamlines this. So, you know, in, in the future, uh, if, it, if, a, if a band is working with venues that are all on Prism, there shouldn't have to be any physical exchange of cash or checks or anything. You play the show, you sign digitally, you get your money when you're supposed to get it, and everyone saves a bunch of time and, and heartache. So that's, you know, this is definitely one of the big problems that we're trying to solve, that we are solving, excuse it's, me. It's funny, you, you mentioned an angry tour manager. Tour managers are inherently angry because <laughs> they deal with they deal with crap all day. And, you know, if it's not, I mean, if it's not members of the band, members of the crew, members of the venue, and then, you know, like I said, these are these are tough jobs that you see that you don't often see behind the scenes. And the tour manager is the person that's got to make sure that all the things go well from getting paid to getting set up to getting I mean, just little things, man. And it's uh, I don't I, I don't think I would handle it very well because uh, just because it's hard. I mean, it really is. There's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that goes into it. Now, one of the things that we were talking about getting paid. But I think one of the things that you offer that's that is really, really valuable is the negotiation of the actual show contract. Um, you, know, you talk about the the zillion different things. And, and you know, Matt mentioned that, uh, you know, he mentioned a, uh, you know, a, a booking agent that held up his pen as far as how do you route a tour, but your collaborative workspace and having these things all in one space, but that, you know, you can spend a lot of time going back and forth when it comes to the actual contract for the show. Um, it, well, I guess what's a better question is what, what did you build in here first? What did you think was the, what was the very first thing, the most pressing problem that needed to be solved? Yeah, for sure. And the two, the two long didn't read of everything that I just said is like, imagine Airbnb without an automation payment platform. It's like, oh, hey, I booked this person coming over and like, when do I ask them for payment? And then like, do they take Venmo or cash? Like, it's really, it'd be a pain in the butt to try and like do Airbnb. But like, since they built out a platform, uh, it's like, I used to host people on Airbnb and I never thought, I never thought about receiving the cash my bank account just benefited from it every month. And I was like, Oh, cool. You know, and the person paying the patient person paying, you know, same thing. It's like Airbnb just grabs their credit card, doesn't even think about it. So, you know, yeah, that's one way to think about what we're solving. Um, but what do we solve first? That's, that's a great thing to talk about. Um, because it was like, this is the ultimate, I think challenge that entrepreneurs face is like, you've identified a problem. Um, you're hundred percent sure of the problem you're you're hundred percent sure that you're maybe like eighty percent sure that you can provide an actual solution for it and uh and then the question is is like how much of the problem do I so have to solve first like I have this vision of what it can grow into, but you know the classic lean startup methodology or whatever rapid iteration like I don't want to spend two years building something out before it gets used because I might get a lot of details wrong. Um, and to be honest, I would say we probably made a mistake when we first started and tried to build out too much, but you know, we succeeded, uh, and hindsight's 2020 and yeah, really all that matters is we did end up like actually getting it in customers' hands and, um, you know, whatever succeeding, but what, what did we build at first? There was a calendar, there was, uh, a, a contract system, like you were, like you were mentioning, 
Um, there was a way to track your revenue, a way to track your costs. There was a ticketing integration. There was a settlement process, which is like, okay, you know, offer is, hey, how much can the band make based off of how well the show goes? Settlement is, hey, here's how much we actually made. And here's how much the band gets paid. Here much, here's how much we, we make. So we had, we had that all built out, you know, from the start. And it probably took a solid year to go live with our Lighthouse customer. Um, and, uh, that was a scary process because we wanted it to go live in six months and I had to go back to investors, um, without any traction and tell them like, Hey, you know, uh, now's the time to double down on what we're doing. I don't have any traction. I was just really honest. Uh, what I do have is five or 10 venues that have looked at this that are, that are waiting for us to finish. And. We, we took a little bit longer than we thought, but you know, the, you, you invested in this because you believe in the bigger vision and the bigger vision is, is still true. Um, and yeah, we're going to learn from taking longer than, than what we wanted. And, uh, we're going to get launched and, and, and this is going to work out. And luckily I had some investors that were just, uh, grateful that I was honest with them and I owned the mistake of taking longer than I thought, than I thought. And, uh, we got some more investment and that, that investor trip where I, where I told, you know, these investors that I think we signed up like our first four clients. Um, we met, we met the people at eTix, which is a big ticketing company. And they invited us to their conference the next month at that conference. We signed five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. And by the end of 20, 2018, we had 40 clients. So, um, you know, I'm very thankful that our investors just, uh, you know, decided to double down on us in that moment, but yeah. You know, any seasoned investor probably wasn't too surprised when it <laughs> ended up taking twice as long and costing twice as much. Now, speaking of keeping your development costs in check, today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale, helping you build development teams quickly and affordably. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, yeah. What was what was one of the tech? What what were some of the techno technological challenges that you had to overcome, or something? You, we talk, we've spent so much time on this show talking about how things are going to always take longer and cost more. It's just kind of the nature of entrepreneurship. But there, with yeah. that, there's usually there's usually a plan. Then, as an entrepreneur, you get punched in the face, and the plan changes. And there's always some, like I said, some kind of technological challenge or love or something's more complex. Now I, I have a, an affinity for the calendar being the founder of Gigabook as well. And I know that people think that a calendar is simple and it's not, it's easy to put an item on a calendar. It's easy to take one off. It's all the 10 million things that happen afterwards. So I'm curious what kind of what kind of uh, hurdles you ran into or what kind of, uh, you know, what, what did you have to really uh, hustle to get over or around? Yeah. So immediately what comes up is I, I could answer that two different ways. One, one is purely customer facing and you know, what challenges with the product did we, did we, how, how like, how's our product process evolve? And the other one is purely like engineering facing. And of course they intertwine and I'll simplify both. For the engineering process, there's a uh, there's a conflict of interest between rapid iteration and early stage development versus long stage, what I would call long stage development, um, and building really strong architecture 
and and having and making really smart yeah architectural decisions and oversimplified um if you cut corners and you and you get stuff out fast uh you usually have to do that by racking up technology debt tech debt um and alternatively if you build things right and you and you make the decision like hey we're 100 percent sure that this technology is going to be here for the long run so we're going to take the time to do something right you have to take the time to do something right and when you have these investment cycles and you know you've got a year to to make magic happen or whatever there's a really there's a really uh tough trade-off between you know, do, do we do this right? Do we set ourselves up for the long-term or do we just have to, you know, move as fast as possible under the premise that, you know, as we deliver more, deliver more technology to our customers, we're going to be able, that's going to turn into more growth and more sales. Um, and the truth is, is it's a balance. Now more than ever, we've invested in tech debt and internal technology. Um, and what we've, what we've realized is that's actually enabling us to move faster um, because our engineers are happier and their and their um, and you know their internal environments are allowing them to move faster and we're catching bugs automatically um, and you know a lot of other kind of nerdy tech debt things that I won't that I'll spare for this podcast but um, yeah that's that's kind of what we what we've realized but there's there's certainly we didn't we didn't do that early on and um, I think it was the right decision to not do that early on. That being said, we didn't do it perfectly, and we could have probably balanced a little bit more of tech debt and internal technologies early on. But hey, you know, you, you learn and you get better. Um, on the customer-facing side, there, I would say the biggest challenge we got into is when we got traction, we did it with foot-in-the-door pricing, so the platform was really cheap, and then we started charging, you know, appropriate level of the value we were creating, uh, and customers were willing to pay that but their scrutiny of the technology and their demands of the technology increased dramatically. So we found ourselves in this uh, engineering kind of, or this product situation where we were meeting weekly, you know, stack ranking the things that were most important to our customers and returning those things based off of our, subject, our, our subjective opinions about what mattered most to our customers. And that burnt out the entire team and we, and we, I think we needed to do that in the moment because we had, you know, just challenges we needed to face and, you know, the, the core platform just needed to improve. Um, but we did it at the cost of pursuing our long-term vision and, uh, and also the team was just really burnt out. So now I think we found once again, a balance between, uh, you know, really understanding what our customers want and need, but also realizing that, you know, we are the gatekeepers of our long-term vision. We know where this thing is going. So we need to balance, you know, you know, continuously improving the platform and and uh, you know eliminating the minor nuances and the annoyances for our customers, while also working towards the bigger picture things. And all the bigger picture things are in the spirits of like increasing the value of Prism to our customers anyway. Um, but if we're not consistently improving what we've already built, uh, then we're not going to have the customer base we need to implement our bigger picture um, you know, items as well. You know, I, I often compare building software to playing with Legos and you, you know, you build, you build a few pieces together. It's time to snap something else on, you snap something else on, you snap something else on. And it's not, it's 
not all, it doesn't always take that long to then figure out that you've been, you're trying to build one item from three different sets of Legos and you're like, Hey, look, I've got a castle, but then you realize castles don't have wheels on them yeah. or something like that. So sometimes, you know, when you hear Matt refer to, to, um, uh, you know, talking about yeah, creating, creating this, uh, you know, technological debt. And these are things, these are, these are shortcuts that need to be uh, patched up later or, and then really with early stage software, I think more of it than anything else comes from not knowing what you don't know in the beginning. So you get, you know, you try to make a plan and then you get 60, 70, or even if you even make it that far into it before you realize, shit, we didn't consider this or our users or our, our beta users or anyone is screaming for this. And now you got to go build things in. Now, software inherent, custom software inherently is not stable right away. And it's not uncommon to try to fix one thing and break three others. So if you're building software and you're in the early stages and that's what you're going through, welcome to the club. I mean, that's, that's why as software platforms get older and you know, that, that, uh, you know, the, the, the technical debt is repaid, it becomes more stable. It becomes more reliable. These are little things. Now, at the same time, if you don't address some of the, the items, the, the tech debt items, um, you end up with what is lovingly referred to as spaghetti. And uh, you'll hear people talk about uh, the code that exists in a software platform as spaghetti code, meaning it just it's like a bowl of spaghetti. It's just all wrapped up inside itself. You're not going to make any uh, you're not going to make any sane judgments about what's going to happen if you do this or do that. And often it's not like the bowl of uh, spaghetti. It's more like a sweater and a Weezer song where pulling one thread can begin to unravel at all. So, yeah. uh, you know, and these are, these are all the challenges that, mm -hmm. and, you know, like, like Matt said, you get in early stages and you're trying to, you know, somewhat, we hear the term MVP a lot. Um, I had someone say to me the other day that they were building an MLP. I said, what's that? They said a minimally lovable product, which I, I loved immediately. That's I thought great. that that was great. Yeah. And I think I, yeah, I want to commend you because you, you did the, you did the right thing. You got to listen to your users and you got to hear what they have to say. Now that said, you can get input from a ton of different angles and you got to listen. You got to listen for the echoes. You have to listen for what is, what are people asking for over and over and over again, and put these things in a level of priority. And for me, if I'm going to build something new into a platform, I want to build something that either helps me attract more users or help me keep helps me keep the ones that I have. Yeah. And early and early on, if you're building things that don't that aren't directly aimed at those two things, you might be focused on the wrong stuff. And I and I'm serious. So I've done this and you mentioned over engineering. I've done it. I've seen a lot of people do it. Um, if I had to go back and do so many things again, I wouldn't build so much yeah. crap into everything right. that I did. I wouldn't put so many features because people buy the benefits, not the features. They want to know, they buy what it does for them. And then the one thing that I have a feeling was that you probably heard from users is I think the most valuable benefit is peace of mind. 
And when you talk about like a hundred different spreadsheets and all these different things that doesn't describe peace of mind. So did you get that reaction from, from your users that there was a level of peace of mind that things were centralized or organized or maybe a little more efficient? Certainly. And I mean, this goes back into the technology conversation. Um, and you know, as, as, as our feature, as the application grew larger, um, you know, making sure it was fast and reliable and bug free was critical for that peace of mind. Um, I just, I want to back up and just state that I think a critical moment in our success was deciding that we were a technology and product company fully and sales and marketing is like a necessary part of us being a product and technology company. But, uh, first and foremost, we're a product and technology company. And, you know, I, I realized that my, my success or failure ongoing is about having an incredible team of engineers and, and product people that can do their job. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, like I, you know, once again, having a bunch of features is nice, but having a really strong core product that works, works extremely well, um, you know, yeah, has been, has been key for us. And like, one thing that I'll say, and you hit it too, like, uh, entrepreneurs building software companies can get in this this rat race of like just ever increasing the number of features that are on the platform and that's what we were in for a bit and we realized that it wasn't sustainable and it wasn't what was best for us um so a really a really high level of discernment and scrutiny about what we build is is absolutely essential and we went through a really hard transformation when we didn't get that and I think we're here today because we eventually, you know, became better at that. Um, like you can't just pull, you can't just keep track of every single thing a customer says and blindly like assume that it's what's best for the tech, the, the company to move forward. Um, but yeah, once again, in the spirit of balance, you can't also ignore everything. Like you really, you got to take, you got to take what your customer is saying at, you know, extreme levels of value. Um, but at the same time have extreme levels of scrutiny about what's going to be you know, what Lego is going to be added to the ship or whatever, uh, because yeah, if too many Legos get built in the wrong direction, the thing's going to topple over. Yeah. And that's why I always say, listen for the echo. Cause when feedback or input or anything starts to sound like an echo and you hear the same thing yeah. over and over and over again, there's validity to that. There is. And, um, that's when you really got to start listening and, you know, it, when it comes to, to whatever you're going to add, I mean, if it's something that benefits the greater good of your user community, that's great. I think that in early stages, you are always best to try to pick two or three things and be world-class at them rather than picking 13 things and being mediocre at them. Yeah. All right. So we, we end our episodes of Startup Hustle with what we call the Founders Freestyle. And before we get into that, I do want to remind you that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by FullScale, helping you build software development teams quickly and affordably. So here in the Founders Freestyle, I would, I, you know, you can, you can say whatever you like, but I'm curious as to what advice you would give to early stage companies that are building software similar to what you've just done? <laughs> Where to start? <laughs> There's literally too much advice, people. The, 
immediately what comes up is like, who, who am I talking to? But, you know, assuming you're someone who's never done it before and you've like identified a problem and you want to build a software company around it. Um, my biggest piece of advice is to, huh, biggest piece of advice. One piece of advice, probably not my biggest is, um, I'm thinking about it. I promise be real with yourself about what, what the current state of your affairs are. Um, so when you, if you have a problem you're solving, uh, do what is necessary to solve that problem and then review if you solved it or not. And why you saw, and if you solved it, you know, what worked and continue on that path. And if it didn't work, be real with yourself and it's okay to admit that you were wrong. In fact, that's critical is to learn from your mistakes and head the right direction. Um, and this problem solving, like it's not just about solving the customer's needs, it's about solving your company's needs as well. Um, and as soon as you succeed in solving a problem for a customer, you're gonna start and you start building a company. Building out a company is as important or more important, building out a company right is as important or more important than the problems you're going to actually solve for your customer. And when you have problems internally, don't ignore them. You know, don't, don't be mad at them or, or think they're wrong. Like understand that if you have employee drama or, you know, people are unhappy, you know, trust that, uh, trust that that's happening and, um, and solve the problem. Everything is just problems and challenges you can solve. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Like learn, Learn to, the master, learn to master the art of taking a challenge and flipping it on its head and uh, making good out of it. I think that's great advice. I think if I had to answer the same question, I'm going to go with uh, understand that things are going to take twice as long and cost twice as much. Um, I, I see too many, uh, too many business plans and projections that uh, that don't take the path to revenue as seriously as they should. It is not, I, I see people come in to, or they used to come in to the office when we were open <laughs> and would say, you know, and they're, they're saying, well, you know, in six months we'll have 10% of the market. And I'm sitting there going, I don't even know what market you're in, but that's probably crazy. You know, to, th to think about and yeah, and then, you know, just like, I, I think that it, or they say, well, if we can only get if we only get 10% of the market, then we're going to be at this level and you look at the projections and they are completely dependent on that. I think that yeah. uh, the biggest the biggest mistake that uh, early stage uh, founders make is not understanding that path to revenue and that the battle for the subscription dollar and the user dollar. It's one thing if you're giving something away. It's a completely different thing. Uh, people and organizations, like whether it's B2C or B2B, become very, very different when they have to hand over $1. And um, it's a lot more difficult than you might think it is. Well, anyway, once again with us today, we had Matt Ford. Matt is the CEO of prism.fm. Scroll down, click the link in the show notes. Matt, I got to get out of here, but I'll catch up with you next time. All right. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. See you around. All right. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.